Well, hey, happy Independence Day. I'm trusting that because you guys are the ones who are here, that you won't be the ones that show up next week with powder burns on your face <laughs> or hands that have been exploded or whatever. Well, I should make two exceptions, right, Phil and Keith, because those guys probably will. Yeah. No. <laughs> Hopefully there will be no surprise trips to the ER today. Um, but, uh, man, you know, independence is a great thing. It, 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 it's, it's an amazing thing. I, I am so thankful to be in this country, to be, to be here, to be able to have the freedom to worship, to come together like this, to, to, to praise God's name openly, not behind closed doors. This is a great and rewarding thing. This is a blessing, a blessing that's gained by our freedom. And so know that I am happy to call myself an American. But, but I lament the way in which our independence has caused us certain freedoms that, that have hampered us more than they've, they've helped. In our desire, in our striving for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we've often gone too far. We've often gone astray. And the result is that we've lost something significant. We've become independent of one another. We've lost what it means to love. We've lost what it means to have fellowship. Because we don't need it anymore. Maybe, maybe it came with, with freedom or democracy. Maybe it came with capitalism or the industrial revolution. But let's face it, guys. We go through life not needing one another. Not needing to depend upon one another. It's a completely different situation. And we're unique in the world. Is it, was it Jim or Joe that was the, the missionary? Jim, Jim could tell you stories. I mean, he served in the, in the Middle East about what community is like there. I can tell you stories. Queen can tell you stories about what life is like in India. And I can tell you that there is an, an intertwining, an intermingling of people. They, they know what it means to be dependent upon one another. And we lost that. We've lost that ability because of our American freedom, I think. In, in, one, in one way. Here in America, we have no real concept of love. We believe in a self-centered love, a love that profits me. I will love you as long as I benefit from it, as long as you make me feel a certain way, as long as you meet my needs, as long as you fulfill my desires. But the second you fail to do that, I'm gone. That love is gone. Because I don't feel the same way. Or, or maybe, maybe I'm just bored. America's sense of love is, is self-centered and it's self-seeking. It only seeks to profit from one another. And here's the thing. Even in those relationships that have been broken, right? And, and you say, has anyone here experienced heartbreak? I have, you know. Even in that situation where we're the brokenhearted, we often hold our hearts out there to the other person and we're just begging and pleading and praying that they'll come back. But the reason why we ultimately do it is not so that we can love them freely, but so that they can come to their senses, turn around, and we can profit from that love relationship again. It's self-seeking. Again, we want to benefit. We want, to, we want our love ultimately to serve to our own advantage. That is American love. And you know what? Christianity has picked up on this big time. You want proof? Go to your, bo your local bookstore. Go to Borders. Go to Barnes & Noble. Go to Family Christian Bookstore. And you go to where they have books on relationships. And there's, there's his needs and her needs. Like how you need to serve one another. You've got to meet her needs in order that she'll meet your needs. And then you've got to go and you've got to fill up her love tank by speaking her specific love language. And you've got to poo-poo every other attempt at showing love because that's not her dialect. And if you do that in the right way, at the right time, in a way that she'll receive it, then she'll turn around and she'll fill up your love tank. And it promotes this 50-50 mentality. Hey, I'll give 50%. If you give 50%, you know, I'll do this for you 
if you do this for me. I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. That's not the way that love is intended to be. It's not at all the way it's intended to be. I mean, we can dress it up with Scripture. We can dress it up with with Christianese lingo, but it's the same self-centered American individualistic love. And it's a shame. If you need help finding good books, by the way, on on relationships, I'll point you to a few. But uh, that's another thing. Um, Biblical love... I just want to throw that out there, you know, because most everybody's read the books that I've kind of just argued against right there. And so hopefully there's there's other good books out there. I just want to make that clear. There are a couple of good books on the shelf. Um, but biblical love is not a feeling. It doesn't seek its own benefit. Biblical love is self-sacrificing. It seeks the glory of God and the good of others without strings attached. A good definition of biblical love is an impartial self-sacrificing commitment to act for the glory of God and the good of others, regardless of response, regardless of reception, regardless of reciprocity. It's being resolved to take action that seeks God's glory, that seeks the good of others, without bias, without any sort of expectation. Biblical love is giving 100% all the time and expecting nothing in return. The best description we have in Scripture of love is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, right? That love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not arrogant, it is not rude, it does not insist upon its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And just like Brett pointed out earlier, we can only love like this. We can only have that kind of loving relationship if we're not dependent upon this one, but we're dependent upon another one. When we recognize the love that we have received from God, we can give sacrificially. We can love sacrificially because we recognize that we've received perfect sacrificial love already. That God has shown His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God has a perfect love in the Trinity. Do you realize that? That God doesn't need you to fill up His love tank. In the Trinity, there is perfect love. And because there is perfect love, God can give love selflessly without any expectation of return. And he does that for the righteous and the wicked. He, he causes the rains to fall. He causes life to be sustained. I mean, there's an end to that for sure. But God can still love sacrificially. And he can offer his son freely for all who would receive. And because we have received this selfless love from God, we can now commit ourselves to act impartially and self-sacrificially for the glory of God and for the good of others. And it doesn't matter whether they respond. It doesn't matter whether they reciprocate. It doesn't matter if they even acknowledge that you've done it in any way. And that's because we've received that love from God. Because we've received this affection from God, that self-sacrificing love should overflow particularly in the church. So today, as we look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, we need to look at how God intends love to be expressed in the community of faith. How God describes brotherly love. So turn with me in your Bibles. Again, it's, it's 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God. To love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Here Paul is writing 
in response to either a situation or a question that he's received from the Thessalonians. Timothy's come back and reported to him, and now he's seeking to address this situation. Uh, Apparently, they, they have questions over what it really means to love one another. So even in Paul's day, they struggled with this self-centered love, the same self-centered love that we deal with here in America. <clears throat> and the situation was that there were some Christians who, who were, weren't working, but instead were feeding upon others. They were, they were using the kindness, the, the expression of love in, in provision of some who were earnestly desiring to love others, and they were using that for their own ends. They were, it was that self-centered love that was being expressed. They were using others as meal tickets to support their own idleness. And as a result, as a result of that, they were stirring up strife both inside and outside the church. You can almost picture them saying, like going to their fellow brother, and he said, hey, you know what? God has blessed you so abundantly. Here's an idea. How about you support me? And then I don't have to worry about trying to, trying to provide for myself. I can just focus on the coming of God's kingdom. And this would be a great thing. And maybe I can even help in its advancement. Wouldn't that be awesome if you supported me in that way? And that sounds really great, doesn't it? It sounds really spiritual. But these guys were idle. They were involving themselves in just stirring up trouble for the church and causing division because they they just weren't doing what they needed to do. And it's so often the case when we talk about love, we come up to somebody and we say to them, hey, you know what? You need to love me. You need to love me. But when we do that, we fail to realize that there's an obligation to ourselves that it's not, it's not first going to your brother and saying, hey, you need to love me. It's realizing, hey, how am I loving my brother? We need to look at that first. You know, it's that whole, if you point one finger at somebody else, you got four or three or whatever pointed back to you, <laughs> three fingers and a thumb. I don't know. Whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I'm so, uh, oh, anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so <clears throat> it'd be good for us at this point to kind of define brotherly love, all right? Maybe this is a self is an obvious definition. Real brotherly love is the the love that is meant to exist between brothers, right? You know, and we we kind of say that, but we don't often think about the implications of that for brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, how deep that love is supposed to be, right? You know, maybe if we got to know Jim and Joe here, which we're really glad that you guys are here, that. Maybe there's a real strong bond. I'm, I'm going to guess that there is a real strong bond, real strong brotherly. Well, maybe not with that look, but of brotherly love, you know, of a deep affectional commitment to one another, you know, a familial bond. You know, I've seen that in Quinn and Justin. You know, I'm guessing that's the case with Brett and TJ by listening to the way that Brett talks about TJ. That there's a deep affection. There, a commitment to one another. They're willing to fight for one another. They're willing to protect one another. They're willing to provide for one another, to seek one another's good, to hold one another up, to build one another up. They are committed to one another, aren't they? And that's the way it's supposed to be between us. The amazing thing is we have a stronger bond than blood. We have the blood of Christ. And so, you folks here at Redeemer who have committed yourself to being a part of this church, when you look around at one another, do you see your brother and sister as a brother and sister? Do you see that same kind of commitment? Do you have that same sort of affinity, Brett, that you do for TJ? Quinn, that you do for Justin? That I do for my sister? I'm sure that we can think about examples of families where we've clearly seen these demonstrations of affectional commitments and those where we've not. And we can compare those when when there's that real sense of family tie, that real sense of affectional commitment to one another. That family just seems to be run real smooth. They kind of you enjoy being around them. You can their love for one another is apparent and that family does well. But then you compare that to a more dysfunctional family where you have one or more that are really self-centered. 
that are seeking their own good, seeking their own advantage, and automatically there's, you can tell that that family's not operating as well. There's a division there. Even if it's only one and everybody else is really tight, that family still can't function as well as when they're all fulfilling their roles, fulfilling their obligations, fulfilling their promises and their commitments to one another. And that's what we're to do as a church, to have that kind of commitment, that kind of brotherly love for one another. But along with destroying this concept of love, our, our nation has really destroyed the concept of family. It's actually possible to go through life and not see a good example of a family. To really not see this, this sense of brotherly love happen between two physical brothers. I mean, the divorce rate in my family is 90%. The divorce rate in my wife's family is 90%. Individualism is so ingrained that when it comes to making family decisions, the family's not even thought about. Not even the kids that they're raising are thought about. It's just what I'm going to do, what I need to do, what I want to do. And to even think, to go so far as to think, considering the family of God into that is just, it's unheard of. But if we are united in the blood of Christ, how we should consider one another even in the decisions we make regarding this life, where we choose to take a job, what we choose to invest our time in. You know, just all those things. We need to consider our brothers in that. But fortunately for all of us who are in Christ, we're not left to ourselves to figure out how to love one another. Verse 9 says that you have been taught by God, taught by God to love one another. So, question, how are we taught by God? I think you can find three ways in this text. First, we're taught by God through Scripture, right? Paul knew that he was writing Scripture. We're reading his writing, Scripture, right? But even, you go further back. In the Old Testament, it, there's so much that God taught about how we are to love one another. I mean, look at the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. God gives detailed description of His love for his people, and how out of the, the overflow of his love, they ought to love one another. I mean, if you ever read Leviticus, I mean, we look at that as set, a set of rules and, and regulations, but it not, it's not. It's all about relationships. It's all about a right relationship with God and a right relationship with your neighbor. And they go to painstaking details as to how we should go about doing that. I mean, there's instructions in there for like, you know, if you're driving down the road and you accidentally hit your, your neighbor's cow, what you need to do in order to make reconciliation. Or if you decide you just don't like that cow and you decide to shoot that cow, what you need to do in that case in order to, of course, I'm modernizing this, this analogy, right? You know, <laughs> um, that, you know, what we need to do in order to, <laughs> or guns, yeah, yeah, right. I'm glad you guys are with me. <laughs> um, you know, even things like, you know, I'm getting in a fight with Quinn over here and, and a pregnant woman steps in and she, you know, she kind of tries to break it up or whatever. and She falls down and miscarries what I need to do there. I mean, just detail after detail about how we need to go about restoring ourselves to God, restoring our relationship to God and restoring our relationship to our brother, our neighbor in love. You know, Jesus said, hey, you know what? All the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament are summed up in these two commandments to love your neighbor, love your Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on to say in John 13, 34 and 35, that a new commandment I give you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so you also love one another. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In the New Testament epistles, we're instructed to love one another through the Holy Spirit. That 18 times we're told specifically, love one another. 1 John 4, 7, a little bit before what, what Brett read. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So our love for one another gives evidence to the fact that we have been born of God and that we know God. Love is essential. So we've been taught through Scripture what brotherly love is all about. But there's a second way which we're taught by God to love one another, and that is through the encouragement and love of the church. Again, this is Paul, the overseer of the church, writing 
to the church on how to love one another as a church. So it's clear and apparent. As we know and apply the truth of God's word in love to one another through the church, we are a means God uses to teach us to love one another all the more. A third way that we see, we do this ultimately because true believers have received the Holy Spirit. Um, We are primarily taught by God to love one another through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It's through the Holy Spirit that God's love has been poured out into our hearts so that we might bear fruit of the Spirit in loving one another. Right? So God teaches us to love others. And He does it through His Word. He does it through His church. And He does it primarily through His Holy Spirit. If we're going to love others, we must first be taught by God through these means. Then Paul affirms in verse 10 that the Thessalonians have given clear evidence of this. He says that for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. They have set an example of faith working through love in both word and deed to their fellow Christians throughout their region. It's clear and apparent. Paul had began his, his, had begun his letter in, in chapter 1 verse 3 by remembering their work of faith, their labor of love, which is Significant, we'll come back to that. And their steadfastness of hope when he prays to God constantly. In chapter 3, verse 6, Paul tells them of Timothy's positive report of their faith and love for him and for all. The Thessalonians have clearly demonstrated time and again that they have been taught by God to love one another. So, what about you? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you labored to submit yourself to God's Word? Are you submitting yourself now to a local church? Have you clearly demonstrated that you have been taught by God to love one another? If you have, put it into practice. If you've not, what's missing? All who have received the love of God in Jesus Christ have been taught through the Holy Spirit, through His Word, and through His church to love one another so that they might put it into practice. But to love one another, we must first be taught by God. So being taught by God doesn't mean that we've arrived, okay? Just to let you know, it doesn't mean that we love one another perfectly. Instead, Paul says in verse 10 that, there, that brotherly love is progressive, all right? There's still a need for growth. He says that even though the Thessalonians have given clear evidence that they have been taught by God to love one another, he still says, we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. When we come to Christ, we don't automatically love one another perfectly as a family. When you think about the gospel in itself destroys social barriers, right? Barriers that that have separated us for our entire lives. Barriers like race and socioeconomic status and gender and just personal preferences on different things and, and regions. I mean, you name it, all of those things are broken down by the gospel that we're now united in Christ. But let's face it, we don't live that way. And we especially don't out of the gate. I mean, it's evident in our lives that that's not the case. And just because we've been taught by God to love one another, as the Spirit brings to mind the instruction of God's Word, as we are in fellowship together in God's church, we still don't do this completely. We don't do this perfectly. In fact, we'll spend our lifetimes, our entire lives, learning how to properly apply these instructions to our hearts so that we might love one another. Paul had just prayed in chapter 3, verse 12, that God, through His Holy Spirit, would make them increase and abound in love for one another, for their fellow believers, which would result in an overflow to those outside the church as well. God continually must work to imply the instruction that, that He has already given us in order that the church might grow in their love for one another and for all. Does this make sense? Are you guys tracking with me? Good. 
You with me? Well, I have an analogy that maybe, maybe will help for some. You know, some people like pictures, some people don't. I apologize in advance if this is a little cheeky. But I, I love guitar. I, I love the guitar. And it's my desire to one day build a guitar, all right, to go from a tree to a guitar. And not just like a clunky piece of wood that you can kind of get tunes out of. I mean a nice, custom, like one-of-a-kind, Chet Daniels special guitar, you know? All right. I mean, I love the guitar. I, I love to play the guitar. I love music that comes from a guitar. And I'm, I know a little bit, and I mean a little bit, about woodworking. A little bit. Now, I could go to a master luthier, which that's a fancy word for guitar builder, okay? And I could say, hey, buddy, could you make me an instruction manual on how to build a guitar from that tree over there? And he'd be like, sure. So he goes back into his office, you know, and he comes back with this big, huge manual, boof, throws it down. And he says, there you go. I could take that thing home and I could spend my life trying to flip through that. But the reality is I'm never going to be able to build that guitar. I'm, just by reading that manual, it's too complex. It's too difficult. I don't have the abilities on my own, right? So what I need to do if I'm actually going to build this guitar is I need to take that manual back to the luthier's workshop. And I need to say, hey, would you, would you work with me? Would you show me how to do this? Would you work alongside me as I apply your instructions to this so I can build this guitar? And so he happily does, you know, and he works alongside me. And day after day, I go back, I go back, I go back, and I work alongside this luthier. And over time, we build this guitar, and it's amazing. And this guy is so kind and generous, you come to realize that he's not just a master guitar builder, he's also a master player. He's a virtuoso, and he says, hey, while we're at it, let me just teach you how to play this thing. And so I learn how to play like a master in the process. And I play so well that when I have that finished product and I start playing it, people come from all around to be able to hear us, to be able to hear us play that guitar. Now, in this analogy, you're like, we're talking about brotherly love here, right? What does that have to do with anything? Yeah. Um, this is not a hermeneutical principle, by the way. Just, it's an illustration. Um, that guitar is brotherly love. Okay. And as if I want to build brotherly love, I not only need the instruction manual of God's word that I've received because I've been taught by God, I need the Holy Spirit, that, that master luthier, to come alongside me and apply that, that knowledge that he has put in his word to me so that I can learn how to do that. And not only that, but I have to do it in his workshop, in his laboratory for building guitars, which is his church. It can't happen in my home. It happens in the church. And as the process, I, be, I learn how to not only build a guitar, but how to really play the guitar. And I learn how to play it so well that the music that comes out of that draws people from outside. That brotherly love extends to, is, is evident to such a degree that people from outside are drawn to it. That our love overflows into all. That's kind of the point. So for all you... Uh, people who like corny illustrations, and that's helpful. I hope that that was. Um, but if we want to obey God's instruction to love one another, we have to do it progressively as we work through the Holy Spirit to apply God's Word in the laboratory of God's church, which extends to unbelievers from every tongue and tribe and nation. Okay? That's what it's meant to do. And God intends for this to be a process. He doesn't do it all at once, but God purposes that our growth in love be progressive so that we can better understand the extent of His perfect love and the depravity of our own. In this process, we learn who God is and who we are in light of Him. If God wanted to, He could have just flipped the switch and we could have had a perfect understanding of how to love one another. And we could look at that and be like, you know what, that's clearly right, I'm just going to go do that. But it would be a, just a, a duty, like we know to do it, and we just do it. But because it's a process, we learn to appreciate it more. 
We learn to study the depths of it. We need, we learn to hold on to it. We learn to realize that we're unable to do it in ourselves and we have to rely upon Him. And so, little by little, we do it more and more and more. And we realize how much we've been loved. And then, this amazing thing starts to happen. Not only do we appreciate it, but we find this is not a duty. This is not an obligation. This is not just something that I have to do to obey. This is something that I want to do. My desire is to do this. I love this. I appreciate this because I recognize just how much this costs and how much I cannot do this on my own. The process teaches us to cherish. Knowledge that's not earned like that, 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 that we don't come back by through a process, we don't cherish it as much. It's just, yeah, we need to do that and we do it. So the amazing thing is, this process of sanctification is a beautiful thing because it takes us from duty to delight. So God intended for brotherly love to be progressive. We've been taught by God to love one another. It doesn't mean that we've arrived. Brotherly love is a process meant to take us from duty to delight. And when that happens, verses 11 and 12 tell us that brotherly love will be evident and will extend to outsiders. Paul continues his instruction on brotherly love. He says in verse 11 there, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you will live properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. In verse 11, he says that aspire means to make it your ambition. You make it your ambition to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands. Okay, you're, that's a threefold ambition. In Christian circles, we often think of ambition as a bad thing. We think about, you know, James, uh, selfish ambition, that we're striving for lesser things, things that are lesser than God. But the Bible's clear that there are times in which ambition is a very good thing. It's a God-given gift, and we ought to pursue it to His glory. Paul mentions ambition three times. He says in Romans 15.20 that he makes it his ambition to preach the gospel where Jesus has not already been named. In 2 Corinthians 5.9, he says he makes it his ambition to please God. And here in this passage, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, he says, Make it your ambition to exhibit brotherly love. So how is brotherly love displayed? Well, first, in quiet living. Rather than seeking to make a bunch of noise or to create drama or to argue or to create dissension or strife or to draw a crowd, we are to seek to live peaceably with all. We have to remember that the first time Paul was there, Riots broke out by those who were opposed to him, and he had to flee. And that persecution remained there in Thessalonica. And so he's saying, hey, you know, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Make it your effort to win over those who oppose us with kindness by loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. So secondly, brotherly love is displayed in minding your own affairs. Instead of being nosy busybodies who occupy themselves by creating drama through gossip or slander or trying to remove speck from their brother's eye without taking the log out of their own eye, we should first make sure that we're keeping our own house in order, that we're striving to humbly deal with our own affairs, being willing to help our friends, to be willing to bear one of our brother's burdens, but to be able to do so without self-righteousness or indignation. And third, we are to make it our ambition to work with our hands. For some reason, some Thessalonians weren't working, but instead they were leeching off of the kindness of others. Now, there are differing arguments as to why they weren't working. The most popular <clears throat> is that some of these Thessalonians weren't working because they believed that Jesus' return was imminent. He's going to come back at any day, so why am I spending my time on all these earthly temporary things? It's all going to burn in just a matter of days. I just need to devote myself to preparing myself for the Lord's return. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to quit my job. I'm going to live off of you. You've got money. You don't have to work. I'm going to live off of you. 
Others argue that the Thessalonians in question had previously served as clients to patrons. And this is more of a uh, a social role. They were like rhetoricians or they were politically involved and they gained support for these patrons. They were paid to go out and, and speak to people, right? They're, they're, they were made to talk. And rather than working with their hands, they just talked a lot and, and gained support for their patrons. And these, these folks argue that, well, Paul didn't like that and thought it was better that these folks work with their hands instead of being involved in all these political or philosophical ramifications that weren't honoring to God. And then another option is that they're just plain lazy. You know? could be all three of these. But regardless, it's not that jobs were not available. It's that they weren't willing to take certain jobs because they weren't desirable. They didn't like manual labor. They didn't like working with their hands. And so they thought it was better to mooch off of their buddy to mooch off of their brother in Christ than to get a job and to do what they could to provide for themselves. But in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul calls it a labor of love. Sometimes love is a labor. Sometimes the most loving thing that we can do is labor hard to exert ourselves to work. That's actually a loving, God-honoring thing. So the sin of idleness is a big issue in Thessalonica. According to verse 11, Paul had already given them instruction on the need to work. And now he's having to deal with it yet again. He's reminding them, hey, I've already told you about this. Now I'm telling you again. And this is not the end. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul deals with it yet a third time. They still haven't got it. Whoever these people are, these idlers, they're still not working. And he said to them, I've already told you that if someone is unwilling to work, let him not eat. And now he's saying to them, listen, you need to remove that guy from fellowship. He has shown himself to be unrepentant in his laziness, and you need to practice church discipline on him until he comes to repentance. So this is a big deal. I mean, the Proverbs, throughout the Proverbs, it talks about the detriment that will come to the sluggard. In 1 Timothy 5, you know, Paul tells the young widows that they need to get married again so that they can occupy themselves in work rather than becoming busybodies. And again, the issue I want to make clear is not a lack of jobs and it's not a physical inability to work. Okay? So this, don't hear this as like, down with welfare, you know, kind of a thing. But, but like, you know, these people legitimately could work. They're choosing not to versus which you can say, argue for welfare. What am I doing? I'm not talking about politics. <laughs> but they're refusing to work at less, uh, less desirable jobs that are available. Okay, this is the point. Not their inability to work or lack of jobs, but, but they're um, desiring not to take jobs that they don't like. Um, so in chapter 4, you see Paul returning to this creation mandate that was set out in Genesis 1 and 2. Okay, We talked about sex last week. And this week he's talking about work. When God created Adam, what was the first thing that he did? He put him in the garden and he said, you tend to the garden. And so when God says, be fruitful and multiply, that doesn't mean sexual reproduction only. That also means to tend that garden, to cause it to expand, to cause it to be fruitful and multiply, to occupy yourself in productive work for the benefit of yourself and for others. It's for all. This is a good thing. Work didn't come about after the fall. Work was always there. It just became hard after the fall. Amen. That's right. So we need to do that. Twice in 1 Thessalonians and twice in 2 Thessalonians then, Paul refers to himself as an example worthy of imitation. He reminds them, hey, when I was with you, I worked so that I wouldn't be a financial burden to you. Okay, Though I could have made demands as an apostle to take from you materially, I, I withheld that right to be an example to you. Because that's what you needed. You needed to see the value of hard work, and so I did that for you. Idleness is a big deal because it's a denial of God's gifting and God's purposes. God created you with physical abilities. God created each of you with specific 
gifts, specific abilities to use them for His purposes, for His glory. Not so that you can sit on your thumbs all day and feed off of somebody else, but so that you might invest yourself in productive, beneficial effort that brings Him glory. God has purposed work, like I said, since before the fall, since before man fell into sin, to be a means for us to bear fruit, for us to multiply. So we were created to be productive with our time and with our abilities by exercising our abilities in ways that are honoring to God, to serve others, to provide for our families, to grow in Christ's likeness so that we might help others. Even in the most trivial or seemingly insignificant, meaningless ways, when we do that, our pursuits are glorious to God. There's no such thing as trivial with God. There's not a a mundane task. There's not an unimportant task because it's all a matter of our hearts before Him. So whether we eat or we drink, we do it to the glory of God. I mean, it goes so far as to, Paul says that even if you're a slave, you're to do that to the glory of God. Colossians 3, verses 22 through 24, he says that we are to obey our earthly masters in everything. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. It's not about your job, or how much you like your job, or how much you hate your job, or how stupid your job is, or how hard your job is, or whatever it is. You're to do that in a way that is glorifying to God, to do it with all of your heart. Because He's given that to you. So do it to His glory. God created us to work diligently, to work heartily, in a way that pleases Him. And when we fail to, we see the consequences right here in this passage. Idlers stir up trouble, drama, and dissension. They end up meddling in the affairs of others and they break down the fellowship of the church. If we are sinfully dependent upon one another, we are stealing from the church. We are stealing from our brother and not only are we stealing from them, but we're stealing, we're robbing the person that could have really used those means. Those people that truly were in need because we're hoarding it for ourselves rather than giving it to them. Allowing it to go to them. When we're idle, we sin more. (laughs) I know that I sin a lot more when I'm not doing stuff. When I'm not actively engaging myself in productive work. You know, if I'm just sitting home vegging out, you know, I'll eat too much. I'll lust. You know, I'll just plain waste my life. So work is a productive thing to, to fight against sin. And when we're idle, we fail to glorify God by using His gifts and purposes for His own glory. Work is a good thing. It's an honoring thing. It's a loving thing. Maybe you've seen this in a family member or a friend. You've seen the effects of this. You have an idler that comes alongside. They're just, they're a leech. They're a parasite. They just kind of drain the life out of you, out of your family. I mean, we've had experiences where, man, it was just hard living with this person because they just sucked the life out of us and we had nothing left for one another in that. And and that's exactly what it does. Maybe, maybe you're becoming aware, more and more aware of your own tendency to idleness. Your own tendency to maybe just do your job but to not do it to the glory of God. Or maybe it's worse. Maybe you know flat out, you know what, I'm not doing anything. I'm wasting my life. Or maybe, maybe you're here and you're becoming more and more aware how you are the one that's enabling idleness in others by continuing to give and to give and to give and to give. And when you do, you're denying them the opportunity to learn how to glorify God in their diligent work. 
We can enable people in our love. So we have to be wise in how to do that, how to love others so that they might learn how to love. It's not just about us, even if our love is righteous, but also how we can instruct them in how to love. Then in verse 12, Paul gives two purposes for making it our ambition to live quietly, to mind our own affairs and to work with our hands. He says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Now, I think that we've sufficiently dealt with being dependent upon no one. There's only one other thing I want to say about that. Given the context of the situation, being dependent probably meant being dependent upon other people in the church and not being dependent upon unbelievers. Because of the strife and the turmoil that arose when Paul was there, more than likely those relationships were severed and these people are being dependent upon the church rather than than unbelievers. But we don't know this for sure. That's just my hunch. But we do need to give attention to the other purpose so that we might walk properly before outsiders. Throughout the history of redemption, God has intended His people to live and to walk and to work in such a way that they reflect the glory of God to others. We are to be a light to the nations. We are to be salt and light. We are to be a city set on a hill so that others might see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. By loving one another, all people will know that we are Jesus' disciples. The love of God, then, is displayed and extended in our love to one another. This is why Paul prayed that God would make them increase and abound in love for one another and for all. All being unbelievers. All being those outside the church. Ultimately, God is glorified when His love is evident in His church and overflows from them to outsiders. And not only that, but outsiders actually benefit from our labors of love, right? From our ambition to display brotherly love. When we aspire to live quietly, their lives are are quieted because we're pursuing peace. When we might make it our ambition to mind our own affairs, they benefit too because we're not sticking our nose in their business. When we work with our hands, we serve as productive members of society and they too profit from our fruitfulness. And when we're not dependent upon them, they suffer no loss from it. So when we pursue selfless, biblical love, when we strive to please God rather than ourselves, we leave no stumbling block to the gospel. The ultimate benefit that outsiders might receive in our walking properly, in our selfless love for others, is that they might hear and come to know the good news of Jesus Christ as God's love is displayed on the cross of Christ. That's our ultimate goal. So make it your ambition to display brotherly affection and to extend love to outsiders. Make it your ambition to please God. Make it your ambition to preach the gospel. You know, I was talking about these three ambitions earlier. They're not distinct ambitions. They're not three distinct things. They're one. This is one ambition. Biblical love. Make it your ambition to love. John Stott in his commentary on this text, said that we are called to unselfishness. We are to please God and to love one another. To these fundamental simplicities, the apostle reduces our ethical obligation. Christian morality is not primarily rules and regulations, but relationships. Relationships. On the one hand, the more we know and love God, the more we shall want to please Him. On the other hand, love for others leads us to serve them. Whatever we wish others would do for us, we shall want to do for them. It is a wonderfully liberating experience when we desire to please, our desire to please God overtakes the desire to please ourselves and when the love for others displaces our self-love. He says, true freedom 
is not freedom from responsibility to God and others in order to live for ourselves, but the freedom from ourselves in order to live for God and others. True freedom is not freedom from responsibility to God and others in order to live to please ourselves, but the freedom from ourselves in order to live for God and others. Since we've been taught by God to love one another, let's do so more and more. Let's make it our ambition to display brotherly love in such a way that it overflows and extends to outsiders so that we leave no stumbling block to the gospel and so that they'll see our deeds of love and they'll give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder that you have given us about the significance of brotherly love. God, we confess right out of the gate that we failed in this way. That though we have been taught by you through your word, through your church, and through your Holy Spirit to love one another, we deny it over and over and over again, and we seek to promote ourselves. We seek to serve ourselves. We seek a love that's no love at all. It's not real love. God, I pray that we would reflect upon the depth of the love that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. That we might find our soul satisfaction in Him. Instead of looking to others to fulfill our desires, to fulfill our wants, to fulfill our needs, may we look to you and find that our souls are satisfied completely in the love that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would be content in that. And because you have loved us so much, we can now turn and love one another without any expectation. And God, I pray that we recognize how we abuse the love of others how we abuse their generosity. God, I pray that we would realize that our obligation is to make it our ambition to preach the gospel, to to please you, to display, to exhibit brotherly love in quiet living, in minding our own affairs, and in working with our hands. God, I pray that it would be our desire, something that we want to do because we realize that this it's a beautiful thing that you have loved us so that we might love others. God, I pray that especially for Redeemer. I pray that when people look at us, love would be evident. Brotherly love would be clear and apparent. And that those outside the church would want it. That they would, they would come here that they would hear your word and they might be saved. They might recognize that the love that we have is just an overflow of the the infinite love that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. May they want it. God, may we want it. May we love the gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.